Threats are rising against federal employees in their office buildings. The agency sworn to protect them is running into challenges hiring enough people. Nearly a quarter of the Federal Protective Services law enforcement positions are now vacant, and agencies aren't implementing most of its physical security recommendations. We get an update now from Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Talk about the threat climate first. What is what is going on there, this rise in threats, Jory? What the Federal Protective Service recently told Congress is that broadly the threat landscape is growing and that there's been a recent DHS-issued National Terrorism Advisory Bulletin that does advise that government facilities and federal employees are potential targets there. And if you drill down into that a little bit more specifically, what FPS is saying is that the threat has escalated around the FBI, the IRS, and the National Archives and Records Administration. They are bearing the brunt of those threats and warnings, and sometimes that escalates beyond just idle talk that there was, of course, that incident at an FBI field office in Cincinnati where someone did uh, attempt to attack that facility. Wow. Yeah, I guess these are agencies that are sort of mentioned in a lot of the political battles going on, and you know how ugly those are. And so the staffing issues at the Federal Protective Service what uh, what are they spelling out in detail here? Well, Principal Deputy Director Chris Klein, he recently told a subcommittee of the House Homeland Security Committee that FPS is in a bit of a hiring slump where they need to bring some more people on board. They currently have about an authorized end strength of 1,100 law enforcement personnel, and they're looking to hire an additional 200 of them this fiscal year. That's about a 21% vacancy rate for those employees. And what Klein told the subcommittee is that the challenge is they're not the only ones hiring. A lot of other agencies are looking for the same people. Like most other businesses and agencies within the United States, we're all dealing with labor market challenges the same as everyone else. We're also competing for the same people. So city, county, state, and federal law enforcement agencies are all looking for that same person to join their agencies and become a law enforcement officer. And what did Klein say they're trying to do about it other than expound on the problem? Yeah, as far as short-term solutions to that, what Klein said is that FPS is going to bring in some new people through the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center. There's currently a class of 24 students going through that training, which is necessary to become a an FPS law enforcement official. And new classes are being scheduled for later this year in terms of that immediate pipeline of getting people in the door. As far as the longer term things, FPS is holding some recruiting fairs at military bases and some other venues. And they're working with the DHS Chief Human Capital Officer to identify strategies and ways to bring in people in the coming years. What the American Federation of Government Employees, the local chapter that represents FPS employees, what they have said is that the problem here is not just recruiting, but retention, that other similar agencies offer better benefits for those employees. And so they naturally hop on over there rather than stick around at FPS. The subcommittee, meanwhile, is concerned that FPS is just simply spread too thin to handle this escalation in threats here. I think a best way to encapsulate this was some line of questioning from one of the members, Congressman Richie Torres of New York. Like the Capitol Police has thousands of officers for one complex. You have a thousand officers for 9,500 buildings. There seems to be a disconnect there. Well, that's certainly true. (laughs) That gets to the security recommendations that the Federal Protective Service has issued to agencies to maybe beef up security on their own. 
And what are some of the recommendations and are agencies actually getting around to them? By the government accountability offices count, the majority of recommendations are not being implemented when it comes to physical infrastructure improvements in security. They find recently that FPS over the past few years, between 2017 and 2021, FPS made 25,000 security recommendations at 5,000 federal facilities. Agencies only approved about 6,800 of them. And of those approved recommendations, only about 22% actually got implemented as of September this year. Now, a couple of things here. GAO has for about two decades now identified federal real property management, including that physical security of those buildings on its list of high-risk programs and Agencies, even if they do approve a recommendation from FPS, they don't necessarily have to implement it. Do we know any of the specific recommendations, like putting up a fence or putting, I don't know, cinder blocks in front of buildings? Or what is it they're actually recommending? Do we know any of the things that are easy to do that agencies might implement? There's different degrees of magnitude to these recommendations, and they're not all necessarily of the same severity. Some of these can be, as you say, addressing physical vulnerabilities. A fence needs to be up. An uh, entryway needs to be secured, various hardening things of the facility, or it can be simply things that making sure that the guidance and policy documents that that building has on file, that those are current and those are the most recent copies of those documents. Right. And FPS is not really the authority to make agencies do this, right? So what else, who else can weigh in to make sure agencies start to maybe take this a little more seriously? Yeah, that's actually an interesting point from this hearing is that FPS is not the first or last word in implementing security recommendations. They answer to an interagency security committee of about 66 agencies, and it's up to a building's individual security committee to, one, decide whether they agree with those recommendations, and two, if they can afford to implement them, uh, budgets being what they are for those facilities. And as far as the first problem here, we did hear from the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency on this. What they said is that they this year rolled out a pilot where they would actually look at whether federal buildings were implementing these recommendations and not just saying that they were. And that was so successful that they're going to roll it out to other facilities later this year. All right. So everybody's got some work to do with the agencies and the Federal Protective Service, sounds like. Yeah, yeah, everyone's got some new to-dos on their list. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the section chief of office and policy for the FBI's deputy director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. 
Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what does that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, but she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My, my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there, um, I didn't. I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of of my existence. So it did, you know. In retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem solving, all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of, involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with an, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. So he thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required and that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, 
I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations on the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve. Um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my essentially my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emerald Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in, bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I 
had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. Is I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down on the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry. Maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply. At the Home Depot, we have the tools to make your holiday magic in the easiest way possible. With our easy-to-assemble artificial trees, you can have a fully shaped, realistic tree up in your house within minutes. And you know your holiday look wouldn't be complete without our classic animated Santa that collapses for easy storage. Get free delivery on over 2 million eligible items, and you can spread holiday cheer to the whole neighborhood easily. The Home Depot. How doers get more done.